Start Somewhere for Marie Claire podcast, hosted by me, Sarah Vaughan, Global Chief Purpose and Sustainability Advisor for Marie Claire. My guest this week is someone I'm a huge fan of, the amazing Ali Parsa, healthcare entrepreneur and founder of Babylon and Circle. Hi, how are you today, Ali? You well? I'm excellent, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm so glad we persuaded you to come on and it's so great to see you. And as, as I said, you know, I, I'm such a huge fan of everything that you've, you've done and followed you very closely for, what is it, like the last seven or eight years. So I, I can't wait for everyone to hear all about you and, and, and the amazing work you've done. That's incredibly kind. Thank you. So as you know, my first question is always, how did you get started in life? You know, like where did you grow up? What were your early passions? You know, uh, that's a great question because I think that where we start is often like uh, uh, has so much to do with where we end up. And I was super, super lucky to start in a loving middle class uh, family uh, in uh, Tehran, Iran, uh, where uh, we had, uh, they had a huge love of what is basic human values. So we grew up uh, with my mom and dad uh, kind of instilling in us right from the very start, the basic values of looking after everybody, being part of an extended family. They were, uh, they were great role models on how you spend a huge amount of your time for others. And, and that kind of, even with, without them necessarily teaching you, kind of sticks with you. Uh, so I'm incredibly lucky. And I always kind of think that it's never Sarah, about where you end up. It's about the journey you took. So often people look at somebody and say, wow, look how successful they are or how well they've done or how much they've done. The reality is how much have they come, right? And I haven't come that far. I was born in a brilliant middle-class family that gave me all the starting uh, 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 help necessary in life. And you imagine if I was brought up in a family with much, much more difficulties, if my parents were um, uneducated, if they were growing up in a village in a remote area, if, uh, God forbid, one of them was an addict and therefore had challenges. Like, so, so it's a great question. And I think that it's, uh, it's uh, very little credit to me. Almost 90% of where I am today was decided the day my mom and dad met and conceived me. Oh, that's so lovely. And then, I mean, you 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 know grew up in 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 Iran, and but you ended up coming to university in 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 London, isn't that right? So tell, tell us a bit about that journey. So I uh, I was I grew up in Iran, and when I was about fourteen, the Iranian uh, Revolution happened, um, and uh, unfortunately, as part of the revolution. Uh, uh, and the political upheavals that followed it, the universities in Iran uh, closed down. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time I was 16, it was obvious that it's uh, uncertain on whether you could follow your education to go to university. So um, I left Iran um, and I uh, came to uh, UK 
fundamentally to be able to have an uh, education. Uh, and um, and that's 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 uh, what happened. I was around 16 years of age uh, when I came in, or just about becoming 17. Shortly after I arrived, um, and you know it's tough. You arrive on your own. Uh, it wasn't. I didn't speak any English, and uh, trying to kind of adjust to a new culture, a new life, um, and being able to then uh, enter. Uh, a university in uh, UK was my entire focus as a teenager, and uh, uh, and they were fun times. I remember them fondly. And and you you went to a very amazing university. Tell us tell us where you went and what you studied. Oh, I went to UCL University College London, and you're absolutely right. It is an amazing university. It's a university to which I owe a lot because if you can imagine, right? So you arrive. Um, your heart, you don't speak any English. I had to put myself through self-learning, my what was at the time O-levels, which is the equivalent of GCSEs now. Then I had to kind of self-teach myself A-levels. And then I show up at this process. I hardly knew what the application processes to universities are. And I show up, and at the time, universities used to interview you. And I show up at this interview, and they could clearly see that this kid has not been to any school that kind of speaks English, but it's kind of weird. And and most places don't take a chance on you because you don't fit into the norm. And I am so grateful for those professors and people who met me in the admission office who could who did take a chance. Um, and, and they gave me a place at UCL. Uh, I mean, so did other universities. I had other choices, but but UCL was an amazing place for me. And I stayed there for almost 10 years. By the time I left, I was part of the furniture because I also did my PhD at UCL. I, was also the, I became the chair of UCL Student Union, and I was active in the National Union of Students. I joined the National Union of Students National Executive for a while. So UCL was a big part of my life for about 10 years. Wow, incredible. And and then you left, I mean, you, you left, and then you went into in banking, is that right? So, so. Yes, I did. I built a business um, because uh, by time, I, I never really had money. So I, uh, at the time, we were all fortunate enough when we were undergraduate to get grants, which, uh, which is what I lived on. And then when I wanted to do my PhD, I was also fortunate enough that there was one scholarship that each department gave uh, to a student and I won the scholarship for the engineering department. Uh, uh, I I, I have to say that's really impressive. (laughs) That's incredibly fortunate. Uh, But it still wasn't enough to live on. I mean, uh, at the time, it was around, I think, a few thousand pounds a year. Um, and so I built a business uh, because you could do that on the oh, side. It wasn't, <laughs> it, it, wasn't it, it just didn't require like a nine to five job, right? So you yeah. needed to do it on the side of doing your PhD. And, uh, and when I sold the business, I came for the first time really in touch with investment bankers. And when I was doing my undergraduate studies, I could see some people going into investment banking. But as an outsider, I had no idea what that job was. Mm. So I started learning about investment banking. I read a lot. And 
And I thought, you know, it seems like a good way of uh, transitioning into mainstream economics. So I, I kind of became an investment banker for a while, um, which was a very valuable part of my life. So yes. tell us about Circle. I mean, Circle, you, you founded during one of the worst economic downturns ever seen in the UK. So, so how did you like come across, I mean, like healthcare, you've gone from media kind of like, like business to, to, you know, investment banking to, to the circle. So tell us about you know, that. You know how it is, Sarah, when people uh, do something and sometimes they, uh, they write a book about themselves or interview about themselves and they always have a story about how uh, in, in a moment of genius they came up with an idea. Uh, no such thing happened to me at all. It was completely coincidental. I um, I, I uh, quit from being an investment banker when my first child was born, my daughter. And I decided that I want to be a full-time dad. I loved that little thing. I wanted to kind of uh, – I'd done well at investment banking – I didn't love it. There's nothing wrong with banking. I think it's a fantastic job. It's just that for me, it wasn't the right thing because uh, banking is a lot of projects. You do one project after another. And I love building things that compounded over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So I just came out to build a company again, to be an entrepreneur again. And and what I uh, uh, saw, meanwhile, I thought I'm going to be a dad. And I was a dad, and six months of Gaga Google later, I kind of decided this is the hardest job I've ever done. <laughs> looking, after, uh, you know, looking after a baby at home or children yeah. at home genuinely is the hardest work. And, yeah. and you never really appreciate how hard something is until you do it, right? So, mm-hmm. Any job, right? Uh, so I, I, I did that uh, for a while, but... Meanwhile, I was also doing a series of surgery on my knee. I used to do a lot of sports and had a knee problem, which I never had time to fix, so I thought I'd do it. And, uh, and I did it in, a, in, in, in some of London's private hospitals. And I thought, wow, if that's the best private hospitals London has, surely you could do a lot better than that, right? Mm-hmm. And that thought of can we reinvent hospitals got into my head. And then, and then we uh, built Circle, and uh, it was, and, and so that was half of it. The other half of it was hospitals were really strange because unlike investment banking or law or any other professional services organization you can imagine, usually the professional are partners and co-owners of what they do. So yeah. in banking, uh, the bankers are partners, in law firms, lawyers are partners. In, in medicine, that's not the case. Doctors are employees come and go. And we thought, what would it be amazing if we created a cooperative of doctors? So that was the idea behind Circle. It became, uh, today is the largest hospital group in uh, UK. Uh, at the time, it was also the largest partnership of doctors in, in, in Europe. Um, right. and, and we got people like Norman Foster to come and design a hospital. The very first hospital we won we created, won the award for the best hospital, uh, best public space in the world. We got Michelin star chefs to come and cook for people. Not one off, but just told them, look, what's the point of working in a restaurant and uh, when you can redefine hospitality in a hospital? And, and, And we won at the end, I remember our first hospital, won two years running 
the award for the best hospitality in England or in the region. It was That's in. amazing. It is, isn't it? Like the word hospital comes from hospitality and hospitals never win any such thing. They win uh, while hotels normally win it. And what we did is we stole a bunch of uh, leaders of a five-star hotel that used to win it all the time, the head of hospitality, the head of in-house thing, the chef. Mm-hmm. And they basically came and from the luxury hotel into Circle to create that. So it was, it was a huge amount of fun. And I loved every moment of it. And then, I mean, along comes Babylon. Now tell us, I mean, you know, this is how you're living your, your purpose now. So tell us about how Babylon came, came to light. So what happened, Sarah, is that as we started doing well, and you're right, that was in the middle of the crisis uh, of the 2008 uh, and so. Uh, so we were, I mean, I raised money for Circle from Lehman Brothers and Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, and uh, GE Finance, right at the time, three of the largest financial institutions in the world, and they did so much due diligence on me uh, uh, and and our company. I guess we forgot to do due diligence on them because we stood and they all kind of fell apart, right? And there's a big lesson in that as an entrepreneur, and I always tell that to large companies that Babylon works with, uh, uh, when they tell me, look, we're big and powerful and you're a startup. I want to say, look, the last big and powerful companies I worked with, they all fell apart in no time, right? I mean, be super careful in today's day and age when accelerating innovation is the order of the day that you, the bigger you are, Almost it means the more shackles you have and the slower you can move. And that is not an advantage, it's a disadvantage. Anyways, those guys went bust, uh, and they, which meant for Babylon, for Circle at the time, was a huge issue to just survive, which we did and then tried. And then, but what after that happened, so that for a period of time, I was just completely preoccupied on how do you overcome the crisis and how do you still deliver your mission. But once the mission was delivered, we took the company public. Something that became very apparent was that in hospitals, we were solving the wrong problem. We were almost dealing with people after they get sick, after they're in crisis and they're in emergencies. The, the, but, but, but that is just the wrong way of doing healthcare, right? And we all do healthcare. And by the way, it's not even healthcare. The industry we call healthcare, it, it really is the sick care industry. It's like, isn't it? It's, it's very far from the old Chinese, you know, traditional Chinese, or you used to pay your doctor to keep you well, didn't you? And you stopped paying them when you were sick. But our, 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 our system is the complete inverse of that, isn't it? Exactly that. And, and so we thought, what if we created a company that instead of focusing on sick care, focus on healthcare? And instead of just being there for a very small group of people who are lucky enough to live in the West or in the rich countries, but to make healthcare accessible, affordable, and put it in the hands of every human being on earth, whether you're in a country as rich as UK and United States or as poor, financially poor, as Rwanda or uh, Congo, right? So that was that was the idea behind Babylon. And then... Uh, and then uh, uh, of course, as an entrepreneur, when an idea gets into your head and it starts just eating away at you, yes. and, and and I kind of said, okay, I'm going to go and do it. And I, 
and I announced uh, uh, just as, as Circle was doing very well, that I was going to go and start something new. And I remember everybody at the time, it was even news on PPC, uh, everybody said, oh, that's some kind of code word for you just like uh, disappearing or something may uh, be wrong. And, and uh, three days later, I left in December, in January, the next year we uh, established Babylon. It was in kind of stealth mode for about six, nine months until we started building it. And then we launched it in 2014 in Royal Albert Hall in front of 5,000 people. And when you launch your product and bring it out and show people, all you're looking at is what is the reaction? Mm -hmm. And the reaction was so positive from all these 5,000 strangers that we demoed what we were going to do that we knew we were up to something that, that is valuable. And, uh, and it's been an incredible journey since then. It really hasn't. I, I, you know, I met you not long after that. And, and, and would you explain to our listeners what Babylon actually, actually does and, 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 you know, why it's so relevant in, in certainly in these times? It's, it's just been extraordinary. So our view or our approach to healthcare is a little bit contrarian. In the same way that you take a Tesla who came in and said, why should we burn petrol? in order mm -hmm. to move a vehicle. Why don't we just use batteries, right? Uh, it's the same with us. We kind of started with asking the question, why should healthcare be about dealing with crises and emergencies? Yes. Why can we not keep people healthy, right? Do we them what you and I, Sarah, do with our cars, right? If I'm old enough and certainly ugly enough to remember that cars used to break down. You used to drive them, it broke down. You took them to a mechanic, fixed them whichever way they could. Then you drove them and broke down again. Nowadays, I don't know about you, but my car, I don't have a car right now, but my car in general, when I did, never broke down. Um, and because you, uh, we buried so many sensors in this car that before something happens, we uh, fix it. If you think an airplane, take it to an extreme, right? Can you... Imagine the insanity of waiting for an airplane to break down before you fix it. We never allow that, right? It's <laughs> <and> dangerous, right? <laughs> exactly. So why do we do that with the most valuable asset we have, which is our human life, right? Yes. Um, I have uh, uh, friends uh, who are suffering or who are suffering from cancer. If you catch it early, you always solve it. The problem, or most times over, the problem is the time we catch it, right? And cancer, as you know, has so many signals ahead of time. It's just that we never, nobody's monitoring, right? So we thought, what if we created a company that took people, continuously looked at their data, collected their data uh, that their body generates, continuously health assessed them rather than this health assessments that some people do once a year, right? Checkups. Mm -hmm. And then basically set up goals for them, gave them plans or follow the plan for them, and then reward, monitored them continuously against that and then rewarded them for staying healthy. As you said, like a Chinese doctor would have done it all the time, right? And then if somebody gets sick, and we all will get sick, doesn't matter how much monitored we are, we can avoid crises and emergencies, but we will still get ill. If we do, what if we intervene really early when a problem is a $10 problem rather than a $1,000 solution, right? And then give people the same standard, high quality, right expert, right treatment, and right recovery. 
Because even then, in medicine, it takes 17 years for best practice to become common practice. And you will see it. Seven, 17 years. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, extraordinary. You know. And so when you see a doctor, you never know where that person, as affable as they may be, are in that uh, uh, journey, right? It's last year alone, 20,000 papers would have been published. Let's say 10 to 20,000. I'm just taking a guess, but that's the range. In dermatology alone, right? If you're a dermatologist, how do you keep in touch? How do you keep I mean, up? You, you, can't, you can't physically read that many papers. I mean, you, do, you, you, you absolutely cannot. And I mean, and as for general practitioners, I mean, like the amount of knowledge that's best. I mean, it's astonishing, right? Astonishing. And, and when you put basic human behaviors, right, patterns of uh, psychological behavior uh, into this, like we all have a bias towards things that are more common, right? So if your stomach hurts, for instance, a GP or a human doctor will see a bowel disorder, stomach pain, tightness all the time, right? They hardly ever see stomach and bowel cancer, for instance, right? Because it happens in so rarely, right? So when that comes and we say, oh, why did my doctor miss it? Because the signals are so much like every other signal, right? And then they miss it, right? And it's, uh, uh, it's to me, it's fascinating that how little technology is used in healthcare compared to others. And bringing that mixing technology, cutting edge technology from artificial intelligence to monitoring capabilities with the best of human talent to deliver an end-to-end model of healthcare that allows you to self-monitor yourself and ask questions as you would with Google, for instance, right? Or, or in any other aspects of our lives. If you want to go from A to Z, we, uh, either we take uh, the guidance from an artificial intelligent map reader, right? Which tells us yes. how, how, how to do it. Then if you want to talk to a human being, we set up for you to talk to a, a health advisor. And then if you want to talk to a doctor, why should that be first face-to-face, drag you out, whether don't we do it remotely. If you need to see somebody physically, we refer you, we make sure you see them in time and quickly. And if you need to go to a hospital or see a specialist, we'll manage that end-to-end for you too. And I think that is a better model of care. What I have to explain, by the way, so that what I just explained is what we're trying to build. Part of that is there, part of it is not. In the same way that Amazon was trying to build the store of everything, but six years old, and we are about six, seven years old, Amazon was a shadow of what it is today. They built all these capabilities over a very long period of time. I'm very open about where we're going to end up. I don't want you to think that we can deliver all of that. <laughs> but you that's, are delivering. But you are delivering a lot, and and, and I, I I mean I understand your 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 kind of you know bot or AI has 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 I mean passed the Royal College of Physicians examination with 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 flying colours. Is that right? Well, no, but you, you must remember what we did or what we do on these things is that you do it under test conditions, right? <laughs> and it's very different than in real life. So one needs to be uh, 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 humble about the capabilities of artificial intelligence today. In the same way that a self-driving car 
does a great job when they drive on a test track or under test conditions, but in real life, right? One, two, uh, they make mistakes. Uh, so so I, we're not claiming by any stretch of imagination, AI can do as good as a human can do. What we're saying is that we don't have enough human doctors. The world is short of millions of clinicians, right? Yeah. Half of the world's population, Sarah, has zero access to doctors. Which is shocking. I mean, absolutely shocking. I mean, that brings me to, to, to the work that you're doing in Rwanda. I mean, tell, tell us a little bit about, about the situation and the lack of doctors in Rwanda and why you decided to, 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 to take Babylon. So, so our mission is to make healthcare accessible, affordable, and put it in the hands of every human being on Earth, right? Mm-hmm. So when we demonstrated that the model works in the UK, most companies will go next to another country that looks like UK, right? But human beings don't live in countries that look like UK only. They live also in countries that look like Rwanda, right? And I don't know if you've been to Rwanda. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth. Not yet. I intend to. It's just a wonderful place. It's some of the warmest people and nicest human beings. And yet, because of the history of the genocide, they have some of the world's largest financial crisis, or they had, right, which they had to overcome, including the fact that during the genocide, many of the professionals in the country were martyred or were, were uh, killed. And, and therefore, the country had to deal with a situation where it had lost all of its clinicians, had lost a significant number of its professionals. And what Rwanda has done in the last 20 years is one of the miracles of human society, of how far that country has come. So for us, when we had the opportunity to say, okay, let's just take it to a country that is very different to see whether the model works, uh, and had the opportunity to go uh, and the privilege to go and serve Rwanda, uh, we took it uh, uh, enthusiastically. And, And what it shows is that the model works, even in a country that doesn't have that many mobile, uh, smart mobile phones. So we had to deliver it on uh, what we call feature phones, right? Which is the old fashioned phones we had. But in Rwanda today, one of the financially poorest countries in the world, you can dial in a number, you can talk to a clinician within minutes, right? Of doing so, right? If you if problem gets solved, you go and pick up your medicine. If you need a test or you need to go see a, a, a real doctor, you're connected to any of the health centers in the country. You just go there, your appointment is made, your test is done, all that kind of stuff, right? If you can do this in Rwanda and you could do it in UK, you could do it anywhere in the world. And that's why pre-pandemic, we used to say the fact that digital health is not being used is not a technology issue, it's just a cultural uh, issue of resistance by the vested interest or by the system that delivers what it delivers. And it was fascinating to me how quickly all of that disappeared when, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention, when uh, we had to convert, right? And we did so incredibly fast across the society. And the reason we did 
was because all of those systems was already in place. We were just not using it. So the society as a whole decided to use what existed. And, and I mean, in in the UK, for instance, you were already partnering, I think, with the NHS. But I mean, this this I mean, like you know, the pandemic changed your business completely. I mean, you you already had the whole virtual assistant and setup. So so what what happened with Bavlon, and and how were you how were you able to help when when people really needed needed kind of advice and and healthcare? So so, so you know. for all members, the pandemic really didn't mean much difference in the terms of the model of delivery because our members nine out of ten times were receiving in their healthcare the same way you and I are talking to each other remotely, right? I mean, I just think it really makes no sense. Uh, I mean, I'm a father, as I said, when my kids were doing really badly or are sick or have a temperature. Can you imagine? I mean, the idea that you now need to put them in a bus or a car, doesn't matter if you're lucky enough to have a car, but if not, you have to take them into public transport, drag them into a doctor's surgery, which usually is one of the worst most infected places, not because of anybody's fault, just because people who go there have lots of infections that they carry with them. And then and then you wait until you see it. I mean, I, it's just, it, it just, I'm incomprehensible that in today's day and age, we will put some of the most in need people in there. Right now, I have a, a, a very good friend of mine who's been sitting in A&E in another country, not in UK, because I was just talking to them before talking to you for six hours waiting to be seen, right? In, in huge pain, right? Just to see a doctor who may not even, they need to be there. Uh, and that is the reality of healthcare that we used to have. We don't need to have it that way. And what I'm hoping for, is that post-pandemic, and hopefully this pandemic, at least in those countries who have the wisdom and the financial resource to have the vaccines, and I hope those countries eventually have the wisdom to give that vaccine to all the rest of the world rather than hoard it to try to make more profit out of it. Uh, but let's hope that the vaccines will solve the big chunk of the problem. But as we come out of this pandemic, Sarah, we have a choice. Our choice is do we go back to that outdated model of care that left half of humanity behind? Or do we use that opportunity to reinvent a model of care to one that is much more proactive? Because this pandemic of uh, COVID-19 is not the only crisis we have. We had a crisis of mental health in our country before it. We lose a million wonderful human beings a year to suicide. Right. For every one of them, there is another 10 who attempt, unfortunately, don't succeed. We have another 100 who deal with anxiety, depression, have to stay at home, right? And we leave these people and we ignore them until a crisis happens, right? This, the, what the pandemic hopefully taught us is that you don't leave crisis until they hit you then you proactively manage it so they don't turn into crisis and emergencies. Uh, so we have a long way to go to use this pandemic as the trigger to reinvent a better model of healthcare that does a better job for us all. Well, I, I, I mean, Ali, I, I, I mean, I agree. <laughs> I, I, you know, you say that so, so wonderfully, and I, I don't know of anybody better to lead that revolution than, 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 than you and, and the amazing work that, that you've done. I mean, 
you know, it, it, with regards to that, I mean, I always finish this interview, as you know, by asking what's your top tip or tips, because uh, I don't think I'm going to limit you necessarily to one uh, for those listening who want to start somewhere, who, you know, who want to make that change. So, um, when I, we created Babylon, the very first thing I almost did was just to, to put in the principles. We wrote a document called We Are Babylon, which said, here is the principles on which we want to build this company. Here is the way we want Babylonians to behave. It was all about culture, basically, because I think companies are often, it's said, culture it's a strategy. And then companies think of culture right at the end, after they've written their business plan. We talked about is the kind of company we want to build is more important almost than what we want to do. So that was the very first document I wrote. Um, and in it, we started by saying, dream big, build fast, and be brilliant. And the idea behind that is really important because you only have one life and it really takes as much effort to do something small as it does to do something big. I mean, uh, somebody who runs a small shop is as busy and has as much stresses as somebody who runs Amazon, frankly, right? I mean, because human beings have the same level of capacity. I mean, it's just uh, where do you put your focus, and I'm not saying if your focus, if your passion is to run the best little shop in the world, that's brilliant, do that, right? But whatever you do, dream big, make it the best there is, one. Two, build fast, life is short, I'm in my mid-50s, I remember um, like yesterday, as when I was in my mid-20s, like life goes really fast, so uh, procrastinating, waiting for something better to happen, it's just nonsense, just get on with it now, and do whatever you want to do uh, and, and just put all of it uh, on yourself into it. And the third thing we wrote was be brilliant. And the reason for that is, you know, life is too beautiful to create bad things or surround ourselves with mediocrity. Right? I mean, the reason Apple did so well was, was because Steve Jobs was fanatical about how the inside of the machine that nobody looks at uh, look, so so don't, I mean, I'm a big believer of we shouldn't do shoddy jobs, we shouldn't just like cut corners and do that. So those were the three principles of Babylon that I can recommend to any person. And the fourth one, which is a personal one, which wasn't for a company, but we do it in company, which is if you want to dream big, also make it part of your dream to make it possible for other people to reach their dreams. Um, I came to Britain as a refugee, I was born, finishing with where we start, in a wonderful middle-class family. Uh, so I saw being rich and being poor and now being rich enough. I was young, I'm now older. Uh, I was a native, then I became an immigrant. Um, and and I, it really doesn't matter whether I was young, poor, old, uh, rich, uh, inside or outside. What I saw was people, everywhere have the same needs and the same desires. They just have different opportunities. That's all it is. And it should be part of what we do in life to, to equalize that, to make, to, to make it as much as possible to give people the same opportunities. And if we do that, if we gave, for instance, everybody the opportunity to have equal education, can you imagine the flourishing that that will create? in our societies. 
So, so that's it. I mean, I, I, you said give me one tip, and I carried on too much. So <laughs> beautiful tips. And Ali, if people want to find out more about Babylon, are you able to give them, you know, the website address and how they're able to to look look it up? Sure. It's uh, uh, if if they just type in Babylon, uh, it usually comes in on Google uh, pretty high up. Uh, it's usually between the old. Uh, city of Babylon or the company Babylon. Um, and that's the f- easiest way to get in there. And uh, if there is anything we could do to serve people, that's great. Um, if not, we'd love to just uh, enjoy the conversation. I don't think we got, we don't, never claim that we have the answer. It's always a work in the making. And I love to hear from others what we get wrong and how can we improve it and get it better. Ali, thank you. I mean, what a, a joy to talk to you. I mean, you're, you know, just, you know, like your, your big heart and your courage and your brilliance. It's uh, just amazing. And thank you for what you're doing in the world. And thank you for leading this much needed healthcare revolution. And, and you know, I really, you know, I'm, you know, from myself and behalf of the, you know, all our listeners in the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, you're so incredibly kind, Sarah.